Welcome, welcome one and all. Have a seat and welcome to the Tiki Bar. Hope you're ready. Hope your glasses are empty to go because we have a more laid back and lax session this evening. Tonight's course is um a bit more, well, like I said, a bit more relaxed. Because it's our 20th episode, ladies and gentlemen. And if you've been listening to us since the beginning, uh, allow us to uh, deliver our sincerest, most heartwarming thanks for joining us thus far. It has been quite the experience, an honor and a privilege to have this broadcast for all of you to listen. Words can't describe the level of commitment that we've put into this and the amount of people who listen. It's, it's been a very humbling and a very, well, for lack of words, satisfying experience, at least on my behalf. So if you're listening to this right now, allow me to Thank you from the bottom of my heart for joining us. And whether you've joined us from the very beginning or you're joining us now, we hope that you can continue to uh, honor us with your audience and your attention. It, it, would, be, uh, it would mean the world to us. At least I know it would mean a world to me. So thank you once again. With that being said, I tonight's topic is a little more on the light side. I've, I want to discuss a more literature-focused topic, and that's the... It is the concept of the sympathetic villain and the pure villain. So for those who happen to get involved into literature or if you watch, say, like TV shows and whatnot, one of the one of the backbones of the modern story is the villain. You can't have a good story if you don't have a good villain. It's one of the core principles of storytelling. And. There are basically two different kinds of villains. There's the sympathetic and the pure villain. The pure villain is the more common, the more comp- the more commonly used trope, or at least it once at one point, it's the aspect, it's the idea that a villain it doesn't really have a uh, a very complicated moral compass moral compass they generally are about as straightforward as can be when it comes to their motivations so it make it allows the it allows the you the 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 story to have an easier time focusing 
on the central theme of their tale. The advantage of having a simple villain is simply that you can work with the villain in all sorts of different ways. They're very malleable as a result. And that, in my opinion, gives the villain a level of practicality that other archetypes don't necessarily have. Then you have the sympathetic villain. The sympathetic villain is a character that has a morally gray moral compass. They generally have, or they're supposed to have anyway, a more complicated ideology. And that fuels their motivations uh, rather uniquely for the story. And because it you because it's supposed to be a unique motivation, it gives the it's supposed to give the villain a level of unpredictability that can otherwise make a predictable story. In as in in some to some extent the the sympathetic character, the sympathetic villain, is supposed to be complex compared to that of the simple villain. At least the pure villain. But from what we're seeing in modern media today, it has been used as the basis that is being used as a basis for which it is supposed to be compl- complex, but ultimately it produces less than stellar, less than less than complicated writing as a result. I would like to say that there are indeed advantages and disadvantages for each of the character types. And to be fair, get, to be fair for the sympathetic character. The sympathetic villain. The, the the pure villain has had its uh, its style exhausted in the previous three decades. Given to, given how simplistic the, in particular, uh, pop culture storytelling has been. But I would argue that the sympathetic villain has exhausted its trope far in the past 10 years due to sheer overuse by modern writers. What say you, good sir? What are your thoughts on these two archetypes? Well, first of all, uh, I want to extend my thank you to those of us who, those of you who listen to us as well. Uh, I wanted to let, or I wanted to let Orlando run with his monologue before I put in my thank you to everyone. Many thanks to those who actually listen to us, those who like our web, our uh, our Facebook page, and 
you know, season two is around the corner. I, I think doing 20 episodes a season probably makes sense for the way this runs. Not that we're sticking to any particular theme here. Obviously, this is the way we do things here. It's always very much whatever comes up, whatever comes up in our brain pan as a subject matter is what we run with for our for our individual episodes. A little bit of behind the scenes for you. It's pretty off. It's pretty off the cuff, which is probably preferential for both of us because we're both relatively uh, chaotic beings. But I wanted to thank everyone. Whether it's three people, seven people, or ten people, I appreciate every single listen we get, and hope in season two we get some kind of uh, voicemails feedback. If we don't, no worries. We just keep running the way we do. If we do start getting some, we will definitely start doing a separate segment each episode where we will actually talk through the voicemail and try and give our take on whatever perspective that may be uh proffered as it were getting back to the question at hand i i think when it when you're using literary tropes of any kind the subtlety in which you use them is always dependent on the type of narrative you're trying to write if you're going for something that's over the top in most in more most circumstances a pure villain or pure antagonist as it were if you want to be much more um uh, vanilla about it because whatever malevolent force is creating the situation for the characters in your narrative it it doesn't always have to be a person it can be much more it could be much more broad it could be something much something beyond human understanding so it's it definitely changes it 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 changes the the flavor of the whole story depending on what you're going for. As far as the overuse of those tropes, I think if you look at a lot of 80s, 90s and you know 2000, 2010, 2020 uh, narrative writing at least for movie and pop culture, you very much see a, um, a, a ch- an evolution or a de-evolution, as it were, of the of the role played by the antagonist in the in different pieces of pop culture media, and you start to get a very heavy repetition in place where you can watch a movie and cue in your head exactly when different uh, different uh, scenes are going to pop up, when different uh, you know crescendos in the story start to happen. Sometimes you can even play in your head the lines that are going to be said by each individual character and the villain itself. It's it's a it's a problem that has been very much in play. I want to say after after the after the aughts, 2010 and beyond is when the the redundancy has gotten to a almost nauseating level. I've I've yet to be in a movie that I couldn't tell you the ending before I finished seeing it, just based on the cues and what's going to happen to the character, and even with the attempts at twist endings. It's very difficult for it's very difficult to be surprised anymore 
by you know the by a antagonist's comings and goings in any given piece of literary works or movie and it's gotten to the point where a lot of the paradigm shifting from the pure villain to the sympathetic villain it's very and the moral gray that you were talking about is a lot more refreshing but at the same time becomes a crutch in place of good narrative storytelling <laughs> i agree. the pure villain the, the the pure villain ends up being a caricature of what a villain should a villain and ends up needing to be and i say need because if you're running a pure villain they either have to have a something a machiavellian plan that's so outside of human understanding that it almost seems alien in in most cases could end up being some kind of extraterrestrial force or something otherworldly almost to an HP Lovecraft level of uh, Eldritch. And those things tend to be much more ham fisted depending on how they're played, or they tend to be an overused horror uh, horror trope that doesn't end up really firing the way that the author ends up intending you get, it's easier to write horror than it is to display horror anymore mainly because a lot of the practical effects that were used in the past that while they seem archaic it's by by modern standards they preferred a very heavy case of horror especially to an adolescent mind that can't that doesn't really understand the the the, the inner workings of practical effects and and you know the corn syrup esque escapades of of a lot of your gore films that are that are out there. Okay, uh, so from what I've gathered from your input, at least when it comes to the development of uh, of the villain, we're looking at the idea that for the pure villain, either would have to be more like the archetype the archetypal chess master or the un or, or or the uh unstoppable force so i i can agree that the very least i can i can see the understanding when it comes to the um the chess master archetype simply for the fact that it is very very enriching to see uh how a villain plays out their uh their plan and their role in manipulating the story to their whim. There's Absolutely. Just a, uh, one of my favorites in uh, of that particular archetype happens to be uh, Mobius from the Soul Reaver series, where he clearly, he's a clearly terrible person. There is no, he is the fine example of a pure villain who manipulates everyone's to his uh, to to his whim he always has a plan within a plan within a plan and with each of those plans it he's able to help you uh, essentially understand how deep and complicated the story can be and that's the thing that i really appreciate at least when it comes to uh, a well-written pure villain. It's the idea that you 
simple the goal may be for the villain, but a well-written pure villain can still make a complicated story and still bring out the best in the in the story's lore. If they can build around the villain just as no if they can build effectively build around the villain and i think in that particular case it absolutely does and it makes him such a compelling bastard of a character then you have the like the saturday morning cartoon ones that we have so uh in, it's such an in such utter abundance that kind of muddies down and waters the 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 pure villain trope because <laughs> let's face it just like the uh just like the trope tends to emit saturday morning cartoon villains are they're they're very very simple very very cookie cuttery and it ends up watering down the pure villain as a result makes it, it, it kind of has writers um more or less disdained by disdain that sort of type of writing and or at least that type of character trope and start to fall in the idea of a that you your your character should be somewhat sympathetic to try and create the illusion of a complicated character where I mean, it's it's an easy trap to make, easy trap to fall into. Agreed. I think the the, the thing that you end up having to you have to understand is when you're writing characters, you really don't have to make them. You don't have to write out their plans. What you have to do is create a logical chain of events in your mind that would lead this character to a point of fruition or failure via the, 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 the you know, steps being taken. Now, as a re- in reference to your chess master or, you know, mastermind trope that you were referring to, the, the plans within plans uh, methodology is much more fruitful, especially when you're dealing with dealing it with it from the the protagonist perspective or from a third party perspective where you don't potentially see all of the building blocks of what the villain's attempting to do until it you get to the point get to the apex of the story where the protagonist probably is aware of it and that ends up creating that sense of suspense for the from the viewer or reader to be able to get invested in the story if you can't put yourself into the story in one form or another depending on how the protagonist is written or depending on how the story is written for you to feel like you can be a person on the street watching them watching things play out then you're not going to go out of your way to well one read what read whatever you're reading but two you're not going to enjoy the entire process that's the problem with a lot of stories nowadays is if you already know how the ending's going to play out there's very little level there's very little investage investiture you would actually put into that story why would you 
you already know how it's all going to happen either because something the because the writer buried the lead which can happen depending on the you know the the steps taken to get to the point or the characters aren't uh aren't endearing enough for you to invest into them specifically if your okay. villain's not proper, if your villain's not properly villainy enough uh, villainry enough you're not going to go and watch them do villainy villainous things if your protagonist isn't sufficiently motivated to 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 make the world a better place in whatever you're doing then they're not going to actually invest in that if you're doing that particular uh, narrative. Okay, so the villain has to be at the very least he's got to he's, he's got to be someone you love to hate, and if that's not if it's not there, then it's going to drag down the the quality of the story. But that that. The ending part, though, you have me intrigued. So, you be- you you believe that if the ending is somehow something you can predict, that overall lowers the quality of the story. Yes and no. If it's because tr- let's let's all be fair here and 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 say this: all roads, as far as narrative are concerned, those have all been trodden before. What okay. you end up, if you look, especially if you look at a lot of uh, uh, movie tropes and the stuff like that, it's all been done to death. All you end up doing is putting a different coat of paint on the same jalopy, essentially. What That's you have to do is the bells and whistles attached to said vehicle to really get somebody in- invested in what you're attempting to do. I mean, that's fair. So, we have been doing storytelling for several thousand years. I take it that eventually we'd be exhausting every option. Yeah, and if that ends up that ends up being the major problem for a lot of people. Whereas with writing, if you if you aren't a heavy reader, it's likely you haven't stumbled on every narrative trope that has already been done. If you are heavy into literature of any kind, you'll start seeing the seeing the. Uh, the matches in everything that you read, especially if you read in specific genres, uh, you you could talk to Phil about, you know, being able to pick out the individual sci-fi tropes and all the different things he, he watches and, and reads. It's uh, it gets kind of uncanny after a bit. And you almost wonder if there wasn't some kind of litigation behind a lot of what, what was happening. Fair enough. But it, it's for me, honestly, it's an age-based problem too. As you get older and you're more aware of the differing uh, background effects and different literature techniques, you know, filming techniques and all sorts of things, you, you kind of start getting much more bored quicker with a lot of what's being offered because it let's be honest most of those it most of those production companies aren't really looking to target people who are in the 35 to 40 category so they don't they don't care if they're not wowing you they're trying to wow people who haven't lived long enough yet to be able to become bored with with what's there and that's what i that- tell a lot of people when it comes to that kind of stuff 
that's an interesting point because that's something similar to what uh what currently the Pokemon company is doing. In case you don't know what this is, Pokemon is a uh, the game franchise, and you probably may know it because you probably have heard of Pikachu. It's that little little yellow mouse. It's currently you know its whole franchise is the literal biggest thing on the planet most profitable thing and according to the game's director uh Janucci Masuda they try to create stories that are quote unquote simple enough for that even a child can enjoy while i guess an, what they claim is enough for the older audiences to enjoy but uh i mean personally i don't quite agree that they've been effective in creating that but that might be that might be the tr- the, the route that a lot of uh, a lot of companies are going with because it's it's easier to write a story for uh, for an audience that may not be aware of the tropes and uh, and techniques that older audiences might be uh, able to identify. So if that regard, I think that only ultimately lessens the quality of the, uh, of the stories going, going forward. And that's unfortunate because I, I do believe that there is the potential of creating absolutely amazing stories with compelling characters and crazy freaking villains with all sorts of different uh, with all sorts of different scenarios. If we actually made more of an effort to try and, and invest in it rather than rehashing the same types of stories over and over again. I mean, to be fair, while it is outdated, or I shouldn't say, while it's been rehashed to death now, Star Wars itself was a rehash and an amalgamation of uh, of story arc, story and uh, character archetypes. And for its time, it was it was a groundbreaking um, cinematic story that to this day has its plethora of fans young and old i think this is something that you and i have talked about before and it's something that we all come to grips with as we get older and it's something i want you to understand as you get older when it comes to marketing marketing will always target the easiest to attract market. They're going to go for the 18 to 20, 24 year old or 18 to 25 year old or 18 to 27 year old it, within the, within the twenties, basically people who are much more open to narrative reuse because they haven't seen everything yet. They're using that level of naivete as a leverage point for people to get hooked onto a franchise or into character specifically 
for the purpose of merchandising and advertisement. That's something that nobody really wants to understand. And this went back, this goes back to when Michael Bay decided to you know, run with the Ninja Turtles. Anybody who had had it in their head that they were going to get a huge level of callbacks, something that was going to, you know, you know, rip the nostalgia band-aid and bleed all over the place with katanas and size and cowabungas and pizza. You, you, you were fooling yourself from the beginning. And that had, and I knew that from the beginning, it was not going to be, be what, what, what people were expecting it to be. Was there a need to cater to that group? No. And if you look at anything Michael Bay does, he does his own thing. And you're either going to like it or you're going to hate it. And I at least commend Michael Bay for that because he's not willing to kowtow to a specific demographic that's outside of his interest. His, if, he's something, if he's interested in something and he wants to do something, he's going to do it. He doesn't care if, it's, if he's using a, an IP that's beloved and he's mangling it or you know, perceived to be mangling it in, in a way that's going to upset a fan base. His, his objective isn't to do that. His objective is to make a movie that he would like to watch and hopefully other people will watch with it. And if you look at the numbers and the, and the, and the money he's made, Clearly, that is how that played out. I don't blame that kind of stuff. Because to be fair, I think that is the most effective and the best way to create create your product. You should not have to care what general audiences say, or I should say what a small contingency of that audience would say, your the goal is to create a product that not only you would enjoy, but that others would too, and you would allow that to you reap the profits, or that you if there are, you would reap them. So with that being said, is that something that you could uh it is it wrong for people to criticize, let's say, I don't know modern stories that lean us lean towards a specific style such as heavy political heavy political undertone um diversity and all that stuff because relatively speaking they don't do well for the most part commercially but they are still being made on a very they're still being made quite often nowadays Despite the fact that most audiences don't find them very entertaining. One of the things that I've always told people is if you don't go into any, if you don't go into an experience with an open mind, you're going to guarantee that you're not going to enjoy it. Now I say that understanding that when something is heavy-handed, be it political affiliation insertion or geopolitical politics overall or LGBTQ things, anything involving sectionality is ham-fistedly tossed into a narrative without there being any real narrative hook placed 
on it to be able to tie it into the overall structure of the story. It's literally thrown in there for no particular reason, just to say that it's there. Like you're checkmarking boxes on a checklist. Then you're going to run into a situation where people are going to be bored or frustrated with something that is essentially a form of escapism. Subtlety ends up being the major, the, the major key value point for anything when it comes to goddamn cat. <laughs> <laughs> my cat, my and, cat's deciding to meow, meow in my in my uh, my uh, window well because no reason, just cat. Anyway, <laughs> but yeah, if. God, God, it threw me off. Uh, what were we talking about? <laughs> so you were talking about how uh, how ham-fisted a lot of these uh, particular topics are when it comes to the shows and how and how they either I believe you're talking about how they negatively impact them. Now, before I let you continue, and you're probably going to lose your spot again, and I apologize, I do want to be a devil's advocate on how, at least in terms of uh, of of politics, there ha- it's not that there hasn't been any good form of media in which political undertones were a part of. If you've if you've ever watched movies like Demolition Man, where the movie seems to be uh, just your run-of-the-mill film, you find out that it has quite a bit of political and social commentary on there, and it's actually way better for it, especially when you can identify the message that it's being brought on than, than if you just watched it with, and, ignore, and, and ignore it all. So I will say I agree that a subtle, uh, at least some subtlety and discretion is needed for such a topic to be effective. Because when you're just flat out, po- when you're flat out posting it into uh, in front of the face of the audience, in my personal opinion, I think it mostly insults the intellect of the person or of the audience. And it has them going, thinking basically, yeah, I get it. I get it. Instead of having it figure that, have them figure out the, the, the plot themselves, because they have, because when you leave it to that point, it has the audience uh, essentially interacting with the movie. It lets them be stimulated more ways than one. And I think that's what makes uh, films such as Demolition Man quite uh quite the experience to watch compared to something like oh i don't know um uh, i mean i don't really know what would be a contemporary comparison to that of demolition man only on the grounds that i don't think they make those kinds of movies anymore I mean, most- if you really want, if you want to make a contemporary contrast within the past, how far back are you willing to go? If you're talking about the last twenty years, I would say *Idiocracy* would be my would be the contrast to it. Fair enough. I now, have I'm not, not saying seen- it's a negative contrast. My statement is: we're talking about *Demolition Man*, where they had seamlessly interwoven the political messages they were trying to 
uh, trying to trumpet, whereas Idiocracy was a sledgehammer being slammed against your temple the entire time you were watching it to get to the point that they were trying to get to. Fair enough. I'm only taking your word by it. I have not seen Idiocracy, but now I'm kind of intrigued. Maybe I want to see it and see how how over the top its message is. (laughs) Oh, it's particularly ridiculous. You'll love it. Um, but but getting on track with uh, now that I've got got realigned my brain after being harassed by Cat, um, honestly, there 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 there's the uh, I, I assume you've heard of the term the Bechtel test. I I believe so. Um, explain it to me though. So the Bechtel test was was created offhand by a uh, by a commentator who was talking about that was talking about a, a set of criteria to make a uh, it's, oh, what's the best way to explain it it's essentially a, a a female positive movie and it was a set of criteria a set of a checklist criteria of different things necessary for that that to actually go off without a hitch it, it essentially breaks down like this, and I'm sh- and this is all off the cuff. If I had the, if, if I had the definition in front of me, I would, but I don't really care at this point. So you have you you have to have at least two women talking to each other, two women talking to each other about about something important that doesn't include men, for a certain amount of time, and that's essentially the Bechtel the, the Bechtel test for for uh, female inclusion in a movie. I now, see. the parallel I'm making here is there needs to be a test for the ham-fisted nature of political messages, and I don't know what kind of what kind of message I would what kind of name I would give it because I mean those things tend to sprout up on their own. But I mean I would call it the, either the eye roll test, uh, or I would call it the uh, uh, um, the, the sledge test, and it, it's essentially how quickly you as a viewer are watching something and immediately go, Oh, I already know this or, Oh, you don't have to tell me something that I wasn't already aware of, you know, for most of my life. Basically it would be like, it'd be like you're basically testing the moral compass of the people who are watching your movie to the nth degree where it ends up becoming a lecture. Maybe we call it the lectern test when a there, that makes sense. We'll call it the lectern test. A lectern test. How long before a movie becomes transmogrifies from an actual movie into a lecture on on ethos? That's actually pretty brilliant. <laughs> and that's basically the way I look at a lot of the things there. I don't mind subtle stings, or even if you want to be unsubtle about your political sta- political statements, it's fine. It's all in the matter of how you actually transmit this to the audience that you end up getting the the more natural response from people. You want something that's going to seamlessly transition through the differing points in your narrative without somebody stopping because they just get disgusted with reading something or watching something because it's so over the top finger waving as if you're attempting to to tell people 
that they're wrong or if you're trying to tell people how they are wrong and all they're doing is trying to indulge themselves in your movie that they paid money for. If they didn't pay money for it and they're getting lectured, well, then in there, then it's just a learning annex and they should have realized what they were getting into prior. But if you're paying actual hard, your hard-earned cash on an intellectual property and it's spending its time, you know, finger-waving you, it's uh, it, you, you tend to lose a great deal of of uh, customer retention when it comes to the things and your audience is going to fall off quicker than you uh, quicker than you're prepared for. And especially because of the significant backlash by, by, by the actual uh, uh, movie companies against their own clientele, you get more beat, you get more flies with honey than vinegar friends. And I can't imagine why you would do that to people who you are trying to retain Especially because if you were, if you, if people don't seem to understand this for, for customer service people or those of us who have worked at customer service, the mantra is simple. A person is going to tell other people about a, about a bad experience more often and more frequently than they're going to tell people about a good experience with, with a specific situation involving either a retail experience or in the case of a movie theater, a theater experience. They didn't like the movie. They're going to tell their friends it sucked. If they, if that the if a company is going to go out of their way to say that a that their specific clientele shouldn't be watching their movie and it's only for only for a a, a select few people, then they're going to continue losing more customers in the process. No matter how hard they they they, they get up on their soapbox and proselytize. Uh huh. That sounds like a specific, a specific situation that you're discussing. Interesting. No, not at all. That's the problem. If I was talking about a specific situation, 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 then I would no, be, no, I would I, say it by name. No. But it's become so rampant. I don't even have to anymore. And that's a shame too. But I was discussed. If I was considering a specific instance, it would happen. If you're telling me this is a lot more common than it used to be jesus christ that's a that's a serious problem also side note you could have just named it the punk toast test <laughs> i mean it's got good i i like the word flow if you wanted to go with that i'll just say like if you're going to come up with the uh ideology i like you know you know put some ego on there man for at least for once you know and name it after yourself <laughs> I'm not drunk enough for ego, but that's fine. Either <laughs> you all y'all call it whatever you want, but the, at least with the lectern test, it so it, it makes sense because you're talking about a situation where you're watching something devolve into a a lesser form of information transfer. So I mean, I mean, calling it the punctose test kind of makes it weird. At least the, at least with Danielle Bechtel, that was her name. And it kind of had a good, a good uh, rhythmic flow when creating the Bechtel test. Well, I didn't want to use your last name. I mean, you could, but that's you know that's up to you. Oh <laughs> uh, well, that and uh, you know, long Polish name number five hundred and seventy-five is not going to make a good name for a test. So no, we will not <laughs> be doing that. The lectern test at least makes sense for for the for what we're talking about, and I don't want to you know give it any more credence than necessary. Especially if it ends up taking off for whatever God's forsaken reason it would. 
That's fine. I'll just be right. every time. That just means that if anyone ever discusses it, I just happen to be there. I'll be like, well, I know who fucking called it. Excuse me. <laughs> You'd have to assume that we have enough that we have enough grip or or influence where we able to make that kind of. Uh, well, this is how you future. Kind of- this is this is how you future proof it, sir. We're calling it <laughs> as of episode twenty. <laughs> Fair enough, sir. I have to give you credit for that. At least you're thinking forward. Uh, yeah. So, so swinging back to where we were talking about, I know we we might as well just call this this particular episode. We're just talking about narr- narrative tropes at this point. We've gone yeah, well past the villain, the villainy, the, the villainy stuff. We we're talking about general narrative at this point, and it's fine because hey. we'll eventually swing back to what you were talking about in your monologue. But it's just kind of. That that's the, this is the, this is the level of flow and fluidity we have in our talks. So works for me, man. Works for me. Considering that it's just only one aspect of literature, and storytelling is a far far larger than just one or two particular tropes. Sure, one is a one is a uh, the, the one thing we we're talking about is a key component, the antagonist, but it's not the only one. And it makes an impact, and everything else has just as much impact, if not more so, than the antagonist. True, true. But yeah, it, it, the, the, if we're trying to get back to that point, uh, like I said, especially with more with, with the modern and postmodern movements, the sympathetic villain definitely has more legs now than the pure villain. Without adding a nebulous nature to a pure villain, most villains seem over the top or cartoonish, as you were referring to it, to the point where anybody anybody with with a uh, with a high school degree is going to be able or a high school diploma is going to be able to figure out most of the the the, the machinations of of any of your meat and potatoes villains, at least with something like uh, Infinity War and Endgame. You definitely had a, a much more sympathetic villain in Thanos, where you can actually, where where any individual person, especially people who have a more environmental focus in their, uh, in in their life their lifestyle, are going to look at what he's doing, even on, even on a Machiavellian level, and see that there's at least some inherent value. Cutting half the life out of the universe. It would would definitely help resources in that regard, at least from a from a rudimentary perspective. They're also looking at it and understanding that the person that's making these uh, making this judgment call didn't ruminate over it for a great deal of time, and that was something that even went back to what he was co- talking about when he was on his actual home planet, talking with Doctor Strange, where he said. I, I thought and thought and thought and I went through and I could not come up with any other explanation any way possible other than this and they all called me they all called me a monster and crazy but I it wasn't like I wasn't thinking forward on this this isn't something that I came to lightly this isn't a decision he made off the cuff one day he's like you know what half the world half the uni- half the universe's population we're just gonna slice it right down the middle this is something that he looked at, watched everything play out on his own planet, watched it play out on other planets, 
over and over and over again. And he came to that, he came to the conclusion, not based on, you know, some evil need to destroy half the, half the, the universe. Though, if you look at the way Thanos operates in the actual comic books, it is a stark contrast to the actual uh, MCU. But at least with this particular character, they went much more sympathetic with it, where it's like, I just want things to be better. And if you look at the way things play out in Endgame, when when you got to see the after effects of what had happened in Infinity War, even Steve Rogers makes the statement, look, I don't know what you want me to say. You know, the, the whales are coming back, the, 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 the pollution's clearing up, everything's getting back to the way it is and getting better. So I, I can't argue with, with the results. It's still not good. So you can prove, so at least with that, you can swing it back and say, yeah, something good came of it. However, it shouldn't have had to come to that in the first place. And, the, and this was a, an extreme answer to something that should have been fixed, uh, fixed in a more uh, even handed way. Even though I would imagine if you look at the way Thanos was operating, he probably did try multiple times in multiple planets to try and make those things work without having to purge the planet of half of its population. Agreed. So it reinforces the concept. It The idea of whether or not the villain has a point to his, to his ambitions. And that further uh, creates a more complex and enriching story as a result. At least that's how it's supposed to be. Because like, you, like you've shown in several examples, or I should say, as you have said in several instances, if you can figure out the motive and you can figure out the, uh, the logic behind the complex character, or I should say the sympathetic villain, uh, the impact of their decision and their actions lessen and as a result. And that's where you end up with uh, having stories where Oh, I don't know. Uh, I want to give one particular example. I'm just trying to remember which example would be the most fitting in this. But, I mean, we could try WandaVision. If you've watched some of the episodes, you find out that the antagonist is actually the 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 loving wife the scarlet witch because she essentially created a world through her psychic power and it's like it, it, you can understand her motive and her actions but the fact that the fact that you do so early on kind of gives the uh, kind of gives the the weight to the whole thing and the story as a result much less of an impact to work with it becomes less entertaining overall unfortunately each trope has its advantages and disadvantages and i just believe that there needs to be a um the very least when it comes to crafting your own story crafting a story that you're looking for there needs to be a a much more careful approach a much more critical approach to how you design your antagonists, because if you're trying to ha- if you're trying to go for uh, a specific uh, a specific route, you're 
your antagonist could mean the difference in crafting a a well-written story or an uninteresting one. With that, I think we've said quite plenty this evening. What do you think, good sir? I do. We've kind of gone back and forth, up and down, left and right. Well, with that being said, thank you so much for joining us on this voyage of our 20th cruise around the island. And we hope to see you next week for the latest episode of the Tiki Bar. Episode 1, Season 2. Don't miss it. Thank you for listening in to the Captain Mediocre's Haunted Tiki Bar. We are humbled that you have given us your time to listen to us discuss things. If you would like to hear more from us, you'd like to see more from us, uh, I have personally a account on Twitter under the name of Ragnarok Knight. My co-host here also has an account on Twitter as well. He goes under the name of Punk Toast. We also have a Facebook page under the name of Captain Mediocre's Haunted Tiki Bar. If you would like to uh, check that out for updates on when we have our sessions. We also have our voicemail link in the show notes. We will be having voicemails read during the course of our records going forward, as long as there are voicemails to be re- to be listened to. Um, any further inquiries on that, uh, do feel free to PM either of us on Twitter or you can go through the actual Facebook page to ask us any queries as well. Thank you so much to all of you. Safe travels to you all. Cast off, friends. <laughs>